Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. Welcome back to Sparrow's Point, an American Steel Story. I'm Aaron Henkin, and this episode, we're going to get into three overlapping stories. Labor unions, race relations, and civil rights at Bethlehem Steel. Now, you might remember near the end of our last episode, we learned that Sparrow's Point's steelworkers unionized in 1941, right on the eve of World War II. But let's zoom out for a minute and look at the fact that this mill had already been up and running for about 50 years before that. And let's remember, too, that this is a plant that was designed with a very intentional company town built around it. And that company town was built with the goal, really, of controlling the workforce by providing everything from housing to schools to a company store. And that town was racially segregated by design, as were the jobs at the mill. The whole scenario was also designed to keep labor unions out of the picture. So what happened 50 years later to throw open Sparrows Point's doors to a unionized workforce? And what happened in the decades after that to desegregate the jobs in the mill? We're going to answer those questions in this episode, but first I want to introduce you to Mike Lewis. These days, Mr. Lewis works with the United Steelworkers International Union. I interviewed him over the phone from his office in Hampton, Virginia. Mr. Lewis worked at Sparrows Point for 33 years. He started in 1979. He was 18 years old at the time, just out of high school. I was hired, and uh, my first day, I was. they told me I was going to be reporting to the 10 mill. They took us over for a tour, introduced us to... Uh, the supervision within the 10 mill kind of explained a little bit about what we would be doing and uh, signed us locker rooms, gave us uh, our, our hard hats and steel toe work shoes and safety glasses and all that good stuff and uh, told us how we would be scheduled and everything. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was about seven of us that day that started at the same time. Mr. Lewis will tell you when you were a steel worker, it was a commitment to an entire way of life. And what I mean by that was you worked at Sparrows Point. You know, you knew you were going to have to work in conditions that were dirty at times, hot at times, cold at times. You know, you had to deal with uh, certain workplace hazards. Uh, you had to always deal with uh, layoffs because the steel industry was a, a cyclical business. And you almost accepted it. And to your fellow steelworkers that you worked with, the people who depended on you for their safety and you depended on for your own safety, it was a type of camaraderie uh, that it's almost hard to explain if you've never experienced it. Uh, We just worked at the point. And if you had a job at the point and you worked at the point, you were part of that point family. Being part of that family also meant being part of the union, paying dues and going to meetings on Dundalk Avenue. We always knew that we were represented. In fact, I think some of us took some of the benefits and wages that uh, we had for granted. Uh, and they didn't, I didn't really fully understand uh, what 
all it took to garner uh, a lot of the things that we took for granted, like uh, the, what people would call today the Cadillac health care plan, uh, you know, progressive pay increases, time and a half for overtime, the paid holidays, you know, uh, the subpay if you were on a layoff period, the supplemental unemployment benefit along with the regular unemployment benefit, all things that came out of hard-fought negotiations that if you haven't never involved yourself in the process, you think they're just a given. Mr. Lewis says back in the day when he was growing up, his grandfather was a big influence on him. He was a longshoreman who initially had worked at Sparrows Point when he first arrived in Baltimore. He was a very strong African-American figure in my life. And he always told me that all things being equal, you're going to finish second. He said, so that's just the way it is. You don't have to like it. I don't like it. But you're going to always have to be better and work a little harder and be a, and, and show people that, you, you know, you can excel at certain things at every level. Okay, and this man didn't go much further than the fourth grade in school, but he was very smart. And it wasn't until I became older and got in, into the workplace that I saw some things. I saw favoritism. I saw... Uh, not openly overt racism, but, you know, covert racism and cronyism and stuff like that. Uh, so you just had one, that was one of the things that I struggled with, that I felt like people were getting opportunities. And, uh, you know, maybe they weren't the best person for the job, but they knew the right person. Over time, Mr. Lewis got more involved in his local union. He joined some committees, and he decided to run for the position of shop steward. And he knew he had an uphill battle because, like he says, all things being equal, he probably would finish second. And that's just a reality of life. You know, I don't like it. Uh, it's the history of this country. But I believe that uh, if, I, if I applied myself and if I did my best and I genuinely performed the function of being a steward or a rep or a trainer, a union-based safety trainer, working hard on a committee and doing my best to make a difference, that people would recognize that, and over time they did. To Mr. Lewis, the unions came to mean everything. He says they were a crucial instrument for garnering civil rights for African-American workers. One of the key covenants of the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King was that uh, organized labor helped raise up working-class people, black and white uh, alike, you know, and collectively working together, you can get more than engaging in rampant individualism. Mr. Lewis will tell you his involvement with the union really matured him and shaped him as a person. He came to appreciate that unions were there to help him and his fellow workers bargain and fight as a collective body. And without them, they wouldn't have so many of the things they took for granted. It was a connecting of the dots, so to speak, in which you say, well, I, I enjoy this wage benefit that provides me with a middle-class lifestyle. I don't have to worry about anything if I get sick because I have health insurance. You know, uh, I don't think that the company just said, you know, Mike, uh, I think you deserve a few weeks off you know, and I'll pay you for it and consider this your vacation. I think somebody fought for that. And when you're younger, those aren't the 
those aren't the primary things you focus on. You just say, hey, man, I got insurance on this job. You know, I'm a, I get, I make this just for working here. And you don't understand the backstory of all of that. It, it is the union and it is organized labor that made that possible. And when you become aware of that, Mr. Lewis says you have two choices. You can keep taking it for granted or you can do everything you can to try to preserve and enhance that union. When it came to union participation, Mr. Lewis says, you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. And he made a conscious decision to become part of the solution. In the locker room, you heard people talking. This is Lonnie Vick. We met him back in the first episode of this podcast. I'm going to call my shop steward. I'm going to call the union president, right? And they would arrive on the scene, and you and you could hear some of the discussion. Mr. Vick was a welder in the Marine Division at Sparrows Point. He was a member of the Industrial Union of Marine Shipbuilding Workers of America. See, the union would go and, 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 and deal with management, right? So I knew that, hey, this is something that I need to be a part of. If I'm going to be in the workforce, I need to be a participating member of the organization that their only duty is to protect me, protect my livelihood, and to help me increase my earning capacity. That is the the function of a union. In 1970, when Mr. Vick started work at Sparrows Point, the work bathrooms in the plant still had the old segregation-era signs on them that said white and colored. He said the bathrooms were actually desegregated at the time. Those old signs were just a vestige. But segregation was most definitely still looming large when it came to job opportunities. After when I became the uh, the shop steward, one of my uh, goals was to help the other individuals, particularly minorities, uh, to get upgraded from being third class to second class and to eventually to become first class. Because I could see that uh, the minority was being not given the same opportunities for promotion. When you get to talking to Mr. Vick about the kind of racism that he was dealing with in the 1970s, he'll tell you it was a subtle racism. And he says it wasn't your fellow workers so much who was discriminating against you. It was the invisible hand of the corporation. When you go into one of those tanks to work, you know, and you're working alongside, no matter whether it's a, uh, uh, what race they may be, no matter what sex they may be, no matter what sexual orientation it may be, your safety and your well-being depends on them as well as their safety and well-being depended on you. So you kind of develop a uh, camaraderie ship among the employees. Because we all were being treated at at that time with you know with certain disdain because this this was a multinational corporation right they didn't have no more feeling for the my white counterpart there as they did for me and a lot of them understood that a lot of them understood that now that's not to say that that wasn't racism of course there were but. What they, what they have to consider is that what was taking place, it was kind of a, a subtle racism, too, in the 1970s, right? It was your job assignment. What kind of job assignment were you getting versus your white counterparts of equal qualification? Because at that time, we were working on incentives. You know, the more you did, the more 
you got paid. And certain jobs, you could do much quicker, you can do much easier, they were much cleaner, or they're much dirtier, either way. And so now that's what you really had to keep your eye on, was to look, as always the comparison standard there, what was they getting versus what you was getting. All right, we're going to rewind now from Mr. Vick's era, the 1970s, all the way back to the early days of Sparrows Point in the late 1800s. And we're going to turn again to our historian, Mark Reuter, the author of Making Steel. When Mr. Reuter was researching his book, he found an archival essay that the original manager of the blast furnace at Sparrows Point had written for the British Iron and Steel Association. And this essay was a cold, calculating evaluation of the different types of ethnic groups that were employed at Sparrows Point. He, he did it in a very clinical fashion, like he was discussing the processes that make steel. And this is what he said. He said that the most loyal and anti-union and family-loving worker that they wanted wor- working at Sparrows Point were the Pennsylvania Dutch. They were, they were uh, instinctively against unions, and um, they were the ones that they favored. The essay went on to praise the Irish and English workers as well, and then it got around to talking about the black workers at Sparrows Point, who were living in the segregated housing on the other side of Humphreys Creek. Well, this essay um, was very explicit. Then Pennsylvania Steel didn't want black people, black men from Baltimore. They wanted black country boys. They wanted country boys who would work in the labor gangs, which were essentially no different than the hard labor of a sharecropper. Most of the labor gangs, there were huge numbers of them, would just take picks and and spikes and rebuild railroad tracks, transfer that, do heavy labor, clean out the blast furnaces once or twice a year when they needed to be cleaned out and were steaming hot. So that became the rule from early on, black workers on the heaviest, dirtiest, and hottest jobs. And when Bethlehem Steel took over Sparrows Point in 1916, they followed this rule, but they took it even a step further. There were recruiting drives in um, North Carolina, in Virginia, in South Carolina to get black country boys to come to Sparrows Point. And when they came to Sparrows Point, there was a really cruel rule. That, that went on. And it was the segregation of Maryland and Baltimore writ in a steel mill. And this was what it was. A black worker who came to Sparrows Point joined the labor gangs. Under the rules that the union in the 40s and into the 50s and 60s adhered to, you could not transfer from your unit without losing all seniority. Therefore, by funneling blacks into the labor crews early on when they're 18, 19 years old, by the time these guys are 30 and 40, they're going to stay in the labor gangs, which again had the lowest wages at the point. Now, you heard Mr. Reuter mention there the emergence of unions at Sparrows Point in the beginning of the 1940s. And I just want to drop a sidebar into the story here for a minute and talk about why then? Why were unions finally allowed on the scene after Bethlehem Steel had been so opposed for so long? Well, the short answer is it had to. Labor historian Bill Berry will remind you that something else is unfolding at that moment in history, the Second World War. 
What happens is, at the beginning of World War II, there was a provision in the Declaration of War and the Defense Industries that if a company was in violation of a federal law, it could not bid on federal contracts. Bethlehem Steel had been found guilty of unfair labor practices, as had Ford, by the National Labor Relations Board, which at that time was just getting started. Um, and so in order to qualify for what was going to be this huge bonanza of military steel orders, they relented in 1941 at Bethlehem Steel Sparrows Point. The union was voted in by a huge margin. And the union, for all the good it did, was originally ushered in and overlaid onto a pre-existing foundation of racial discrimination. So an ostensibly good thing, like unit seniority, meaning you got paid more the longer you were in a unit, could end up being a straitjacket if the unit you got funneled into was the lowest paying unit at the plant. Someone needed to be brave enough to step up and challenge that system. Fast forward now to the 1960s. Okay, we're speaking about Eddie Barty Sr. This is the voice of Eddie Barty Jr. His dad passed away a few months before this podcast got going. But Mr. Barty Sr. was a major force for racial justice at Sparrows Point, and his son graciously sat down to talk about his dad's influence as a union leader and a civil rights activist. I was in the first grade, and my brother and my sister was in the second grade. We was in the same classroom, and we had the same teachers that my parents had. We had Miss Brown, Miss Beatrice Brown, and we had Mr. Uh, Mr. Yeager was the principal, was a black principal. So, of course, things were segregated at that particular time. In the 1960s, the Barty family lived on the 700 block of J Street in the largely still segregated Sparrows Point. Barty Jr. says when he and his brothers and sisters were little, they knew their dad was involved in the union, but they didn't really know or appreciate what that meant at the time. Dad was always fighting for a better standard of living for all people. But because of the fact that discrimination was, was super high at Bethlehem still, where blacks were only working labor, and you had to fight in order to move up because of the fact that the union and the company had kind of stalemated them in this position. So they had to go to Annapolis. They had to go to Washington, D.C. They had to fight for the incentive degree. They had to fight for back pay because they were denied promotions. Barty Jr. remembers when they were little, their dad would have him and his brothers distributing leaflets door-to-door from Sparrows Point to Turner's Station. They knew they were helping their dad with work stuff, but they didn't understand the impact of what they were doing. My father had a great impact on the steel industry because of the fact that once he became the vice president in 1962, they were able to go... They had a, a, a group called the Statesmen, which was a black group. And this was from Gary, Indiana. This was from um, Illinois, Chicago. All the black steel uh, companies had black pockets of black people that were gathered together to go fight over Washington, D.C. to promote this incentive degree. The incentive degree came in play. It was a major thing in the 70s, the early part of the 70s it came through. So what it did, it promoted the black people, to actually move up on the units. 
and become crane operators, become truck drivers, and, and eventually to open the doors for blacks to start to become foremans. I went over to D.C. with Dad, and I'm on a bus a couple of times, and it was interesting just to see how they went to the Justice Department. They went uh, several different parts of the government, and they, and they would sit there, and they would lobby to make changes, lobby to make changes. So it would be two, three buses, and when you filled that room up, you would get people's attentions. And like you say, that was just the beginning of the tip of the iceberg for me as a young kid to learn as I went through exactly what was going on. As the 60s progressed, black union workers filed lawsuits that added to the political pressure. Deborah Rudisill, author of Roots of Steel, says those lawsuits are what ultimately led to two consent decrees. Which mandated um, a move from the former system, which was unit seniority, the system which had kept black steel workers confined to uh, a few units at Sparrows Point to plant seniority, which allowed them to uh, promote outside of their original unit. And at that point, um, as many of my sources told me, they were able to really move from the bottom to the top. People who had started, who had been hired as, let's say, laborers in the post-World War II era, were able by the end of their careers after this 1974 ruling to gradually promote their way up to the top job on the line. All right, I want to hearken back to something we learned a few minutes ago this episode. Remember how it was the advent of World War II and the prospect of missing out on those plum military contracts that finally snapped the management of Bethlehem Steel into shape and got them to open the door to labor unions? Well, in the 1960s, there was another war going on, the Vietnam War. And, you guessed it, those plum defense contracts were dependent on steel companies being in compliance with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Over the years, whenever Bethlehem Steel, which was you know, one of the United States' uh, kind of most respected and uh, most successful companies, whenever they were under pressure from uh, workers, for example, during the drive to un- for unionization during World War II, later with a civil rights in the 1960s. One of the ways that the government got forced them to accept unions, uh, civil rights demands of, of black steel workers was because they had they wanted defense contracts. So that was enormously important. Um, and without that kind of stick to force Bethlehem Steel um, into accepting changes that they didn't want to expect, those things would have taken a lot longer. One of the stipulations of the consent decree, by the way, was that Bethlehem Steel was required to compensate black workers with back pay for past discrimination. I remember sitting with a, a black co-worker at the time the consent decree was being settled this is Len Schindel, a former steelworker and union leader who advocated for his black colleagues at the time. And we tried to figure out how much money he had lost by not being in a skilled department that was kind of close to him all, all those years. And we figured it out to, I think, $65,000. And he had just gotten a check for, I think, $1,200 for, for back pay for past discrimination. What's that old expression? Power is never given. It must be taken. I think the moral of the story here is that 
Historically, unions have been the workers' tool to take that power. Lonnie Vick puts it this way. As an organization, they know that we have, we bring strength to the, to the workforce and the corporation do not want that to happen. The reality is, though, union strength has been dwindling nationwide for decades. It was down to 20% in the mid-1980s, and today it's down around 10%. Here's Mike Lewis again. The time in the late 70s when I started, when CEO compensation was 40 times that of the average person on the shop floor, you know, until we fast forward right now, and and a CEO and compensation is 450 times that of the average person on the shop floor. And what happened in between all of that is the correlation between our union density in this country. As 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 unions, as unionized work workers went down and the unionized workplaces went down, what went up was CEO compensation. So I spend a lot of time trying to help people see the correlation between the two because it's not by accident. Later on in this series, we're going to get into the reasons behind the eventual decline of Sparrows Point. And when we do, we're going to hear a fair amount of talk from steelworkers about who or what to blame for that decline. Len Schindel says sometimes that finger gets pointed at the unions themselves. You know, as imports penetrated the markets, as globalization developed... And there were steps taken which people saw as negative in terms of conceding some on working conditions, conceding some on stuff like vacations and and wages um, to some extent. Um, I think there was a tendency for people to blame the union for becoming weak and... You know, I think in some cases that was a legitimate criticism because when you negotiate in a concessionary fashion, you need to always be asking, what are you getting in return? Are you, are you, for instance, getting the company to invest more money to make the court, make the operations more viable, or are you just giving, giving way um, that they can then use to, however they see fit? So. But um, I think over time, as people lost some of the things that they might have taken for granted, we might have taken for granted, not they, um, I think the perception of the union changed. You must invest in your employees' education. You might remember Andrew Morton from the first episode in this series. He's the steelworker who taught himself computer programming and ended up creating an interactive software training package for Bethlehem Steel. Mr. Morton looks back on Sparrow's point, and he says, there was one thing both unions and management failed to realize until it was too late. You must encourage your employees to become more educated and reward them when they do, because that is the basis of your business. Regardless of all the machinery and all the technology, it still needs human influence. And if you do not have the human influence in there, you do not have the skilled trained people in there, you can have all the technology in the world. You're going to fail.
On that note of foreboding, we're going to get ready to wrap up this episode. And uh, as we do, I want to bring one more voice into the mix here to reflect on what we've learned together over the past half hour or so. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And Anita, you've been listening along with us to this episode to the interweaving stories of labor unions and racial justice and civil rights. What strikes you about this chapter of the Sparrows Point story? What's your takeaway? I love this episode. I thought it was really moving. I was particularly moved by a number of things that Mike Lewis said. Among them, um, this sense that you can't take the gains that unions have helped bring about for granted and that in order to sustain those people need to stay involved. I also found his statement very powerful about his father telling him that he was going to have to work twice as hard to get just as far as other people. And I also thought that Andrew Morton's comment at the end was interesting about the importance and the value of continuing to invest in professional development and invest in the workforce and that management needs to realize that the greatest strength is their workers. Especially powerful coming from him when we heard his story in the first episode about how he took it upon himself to, if you've heard the first episode, sketch all the different items in the mill, learn his own software programming, and end up creating training programs for for the company that that launched it into the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I really thought that that description from the first episode sounded like a TED talk, because what it reminded me of was Andrew Morton saw the same things that everybody else was looking at, but he saw something different in them. So he saw that there was a problem that um, the engineers were writing writing the training manuals when it ought to have been the operational people who really knew how things worked. And it was something that anybody else could have observed, but he, he saw it in a different way and did something about it that was really important. You know, a real learning moment for me this episode was this idea that certain pressures were brought to bear on Bethlehem Steel and the steel industry at large by the U.S. government. And there's this sort of carrot and the stick. Whenever there was a war, there was a bonanza of military contracts. And those contracts were only available to you as a steel company if, for example, before World War II, you were in compliance with union regulations. And then later during the Vietnam War era, if you were in compliance with civil rights statutes. Yeah, that made a big impression on me, too, the importance of policy at the federal level in shaping corporate behavior. I thought that was a really important takeaway from this episode, and as was the statement by Mike Lewis towards the end of the interview that none of this is by accident. He was referring to the rise in disparity between CEO pay and the average pay of of, of someone who works on the shop floor, increasing from, I think it was 40 times when he first started working to 450 times today. You know, he correlates that to the decline of the power of unions, but he also says very powerfully, this was not by accident. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Anita, always grateful for your insights, and we'll talk again next episode. Thank you. I look forward to it. All right, coming up next time on the podcast, when the first female steelworkers took mill jobs in the 1970s, 
they stepped into a work environment that was crass, it was sexist, and it was openly hostile to their presence. I can remember them hanging out of the cranes and hollering at us, and I say, who ruled this world? Girls, girls, and kept on walking. Next episode, we'll meet three women of steel from that pioneering generation of female steelworkers and hear their stories of setbacks and perseverance. Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.